Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this Lord's Day. We're back in the book of Mark. Um, if you haven't been with us for, the, I guess, the last year, um, you might not have been here for any of our uh, sermons through Mark. We're over halfway through the book. Um, maybe you were with us and you forgot, it was, or you couldn't make it. It was often on, in our evening services that we went through the Gospel of Mark. Um, but by way of recap, I think it would be helpful to kind of summarize where we're at before I read the passage since it's been so long, and to kind of bring out some of the themes that are present throughout the book that are important this morning. So the first half of Mark, Jesus' identity as the Messiah and as the Son of God is, is laid forth, though it's kind of in a veiled fashion, as he's waiting for the designated time to reveal his Messiahship. And that comes in, in Mark 8, that's kind of the turning point in Mark 8, when Peter confesses uh, Christ as, as the, Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And following this, Jesus shows what it means to be the Messiah. It doesn't mean immediate glory, but rather is a call to suffering and death before his glory, and therefore before the glory of those who follow him as well. And in this, he shows us the, the way, the logic of the kingdom of heaven, suffering before glory. There are also some key themes in, in Mark's gospel to keep an eye out for as we dive back in in the next few months. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is, is a key teaching point in Mark's gospel. It's clear in Jesus' explicit teaching. It's clear in his parables and even in his mir- miracles and um, other works. There's also the theme of, of Christ's human nature. His human nature is emphasized in Mark's gospel, though not at the expense of his divine nature. But we'll see that in today's passage. And a third theme to keep an eye out for is the foolishness of the disciples. The foolishness of the disciples. These three themes, the kingdom of heaven, Christ's human nature, and the foolishness of the disciples are all present in our text this morning as well. We'll see how Jesus expounds on the logic, the operation of God's heavenly kingdom against the backdrop of false understandings. Mark also emphasizes Jesus' perfect human nature here, and Jesus corrects the foolish, erroneous attitude of his disciples, and I think that's instructive for us as church as well. So with these themes in mind, and with that recap out of the way, uh, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 10 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We'll be reading from Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the, little, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for your word as we consider it now. We ask that you would be present in our midst. Help us to understand how Christ speaks to us today from this passage. Lord, give us, give us the faith like a child that is on display here. And we pray that you would be present in your word, and Christ would be proclaimed. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Must we forsake sin, forsake the world, 
before coming to Christ? I think our tendency is it's usually to say, yes, we must forsake sin, we must repent, we must forsake the world in coming to Christ. But this is, um, many in our tradition would argue, this is actually a legalist tendency. Our tradition has firmly stood on the view that, no, we must not forsake sin in coming to Christ. Now, by no means does this mean we don't repent in the Christian life. This doesn't mean that sin reigns in our moral bodies as we await Christ's second coming. So what does it mean? What does it mean that we don't forsake sin in coming to Christ? Well, again, it's not a rejection of repentance. It's rather a statement of how we come to Christ as sinners. For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. To say we must repent prior to coming to Christ is to, earn a, is to attempt to earn a share in our inheritance as children of God. It is, it's symptomatic of a legal spirit, ultimately, that we believe we earn God's favor in some way, even if he ultimately gives it to us, but we have to earn it before coming to him. Be it age, as we see in our text, potentially, or wisdom, or understanding, maybe by obedience. None of these things are conditions for coming to Christ and his gospel. And that's the main theme of our text this morning. The gospel has no conditions or prerequisites. It's a free offer of grace from God. And therefore, entrance into God's kingdom, it's free, and it ought to be received as such, as a free gift. But this is a two-edged sword, as, as we see here in Mark. On the one hand, we should readily receive God's kingdom as he has given it to us. As he said, receive it like a child. By faith, we are made heirs of Christ. So we trust in that promise. By faith and not by sight, not by works, not by age, wisdom, power, understanding. To have true faith is to receive the kingdom readily as a child, without doubt or suspicion. And on the other hand, we should not hesitate to receive others. Others such children, as Christ says, and we'll get into what that means. But I do want to clarify as we go forward, um, this is not a passage that defends baptism, infant baptism particularly. It's not a passage that really touches on baptism at all, but um, there are several reasons for this. And the reason I bring this up is many have claimed, in the Reformed tradition, which we would like to claim a part in, Many do claim that this passage is a proof text for the practice of infant baptism, at least one of them. There are several reasons here I want to lay forth before we, we dig into the text, just so it's out of the way as we go forward. First, there's utter silence in this passage and in the parallels in Luke and Matthew as well. So if this passage were pertinent to the practice of baptism in the church, I think Jesus and the other gospel writers would have made it very clear here as they make clear in any case, dealing with the direction for the practice of the church, specifically the ordinances. They never fail to give clear and adequate instruction regarding baptism in the Lord's Supper. But also the passage, it says, says nothing about the, the belief or lack thereof from those bringing their children. So if we're to use this as a basis for infant baptism, uh, the classic view is that it's the children of believers who are baptized, but here there's, there's no indication that these people bringing their children were believers. So the logical conclusion is anyone can be baptized, any child. Well, the occasion also, at its face value, this is not an unusual occasion. This is not a, an institution of a ceremony. 
like baptism. At the time, people would regularly seek out the touch, the healing touch and blessing of miracle workers, of mighty men. We've seen this throughout the, the book of Mark. So in other words, again, this is, not, this is not a ceremony instituting the practice of baptism, particularly infant baptism. Now, could this say anything about our doctrine of baptism, how we understand the implications of it? Of course. Of course, what it means to be a child of God. And the children of God are baptized, but, but again, what does it mean to be a child of God? That is, that's the question here. We cannot use this as a proof text for our practice of baptism, um, our practice specifically, but it can affect our theology. Again, the, the key theme here is, is the nature of God's kingdom and its recipients. So with that in mind, I want to draw two, two primary points this morning on that We see from this passage how the gospel of the kingdom is received by two groups of people. The legalist and the child child of God. The legalist is one who assumes conditions to be received into God's kingdom. The disciples here, they show this legalist tendency. And on the other hand, the child, the one who is childlike in faith. These are those who readily come to the embrace and blessing of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's Consider the first point, the legalist reception of the gospel of the kingdom. And we see this primarily in verses 13 and 14 here. The legalist despises the free nature of God's grace and its lack of conditionality on man's part for salvation. For our consideration here, to consider legalism better, I have three S's for you in good Baptist fashion. Three S's this morning. We have the symptoms of legalism, the suspicions of legalism, and a solution to legalism. So first, what are the, what are the symptoms of legalism, of a, of a legal spirit at work? Well, you may be wondering, what is, what is legalism exactly? What is a legal spirit? Our common answer to that, very simple, and it's true to an extent, is, well, legalism is simply salvation by works. Salvation by works. Now, it is that, for sure. But it's a lot more than that. It runs a lot deeper. It's a lot more prevalent than salvation, a doctrine of salvation by works. Which is why we can point to other traditions that obfuscate the truth of the gospel. They don't claim salvation by works, but we can look at them and say, you're operating on a legalist understanding of the gospel. So what is that? What is legalism? Well, better defined, legalism is seeking to obey God in order to earn his favor to earn a greater degree of righteousness or seeking to obey him out of fear of final judgment. Legalism is seeking to obey God for greater favor in his kingdom or out of fear of judgment. The legalist ultimately operates on a twisted view of God's law. If we ourselves can earn God's favor or escape his wrath, either way, after the fall to do so, we have to lower the standard of law, ultimately, if it's going to be achieved. And God's law cannot be lowered from the standard based on his nature. It's perfect. He's holy. So legalism operates on a lowered view of the law that makes it achievable, and in reality, that is impossible. And here in Mark 10, the disciples here, they, they show the clear symptoms of this, this legal spirit at work, this legalistic view of the kingdom. In their eyes, these children, they were only a distraction from Christ's true mission as the Messiah. Recall in previous passages, if you've read Mark or been with us while we've gone through it, they had a faulty view of the Messiah. 
They believed he would come with military power, with pure strength. He would come and dominate the pagans around. But that was an overrealized eschatology. It was to bring the final kingdom on earth now rather than by stages and, again, forgetting the gospel message. Also consider that in the ancient world, children were, they were among the lowest ranks in society. Besides the firstborn sons, and even in only some cases then, among the rich, most children were seen as a burden in the best cases, and in the worst cases, a pestilence, a nuisance. Now thankfully in our society, we have many barriers in place to protect the dignity, the importance, the, the livelihood of children. We have agencies, laws, regulation that do this. But I don't think the predominant worldview concerning children and their status it's really much different from the ancient one. I mean, you consider a case in point, the, the continual slaughter of unborn children in the womb displays this. The view also that children are merely a financial burden preventing us from living out our potential. I think that uh, is true for men and women, but particularly women. Um, they're told that having children will prevent you from fulfilling your potential in a career. In our society, they laugh at the Christian belief that children are a blessing. They're a blessing. Put simply, the ancient context here in Mark, it's not much different from our own context today. And because of this, even the disciples, I think we can fall into this tendency, decided that children, they don't meet the requirements to, to receive the blessing of Christ. Their age, maybe, reflected little worth in the time. Their lack of understanding meant that they didn't deserve the time of Christ, the words of Christ. They wouldn't understand anyway. Maybe they viewed their status as too lowly for a man of such renown and power. In reality, these are the ones who Christ came for. He came for the least of these, and that included such children. We'll get into what he means by such children. Ultimately, the disciples, they did not want to believe. They didn't want to believe that the kingdom of God is a freely offered gift. They wanted to believe that they could earn a share in it themselves. I think this is instructive in how we evaluate our own hearts. Our own attitudes toward outsiders, toward new believers, toward even children in our midst at times. Those are the symptoms of, of, a, legalist, of a legalist spirit. But second, let's consider the suspicions of legalism. The suspicions. Upon the disciples rebuking those bringing the children, Christ says he indignantly corrects them. Ultimately, he's getting at the the suspicious attitude that often comes with a legal spirit. This passage is, in many ways, it's like a living parable because Christ does something, there's a literal action happening, but he's getting at something deeper than than the status of, of children in the ancient world. It is that, but it's more. And his actions here, and his blessing of the children, and his teaching, he reveals that he reveals what the disciples think of themselves and what they think of others. Disciples and legalists, for that matter, they view themselves as better, more worthy of grace, for they have earned their own share in it. It reveals what they think of others. They have a changed view of the law. And this view of the law allows them to condemn others, but not to consider themselves, not to consider the law in their own eyes. 
It also reveals the false pretenses concerning so-called prerequisites for receiving the grace of God. Ultimately, the disciples, they were suspicious of anyone who was deemed the least of these children, and as we've seen before, the blind, the lame, the weak. Yet Christ, as we read this morning in our, in our law passage, Christ declares the last to be first and the first to be last. And this brings us to the third S, solution offered in the gospel, the solution for legalism. We see this primarily here in verse 14. In verse 14, Christ displays the true operation of grace, the true operation of grace within the heavenly kingdom. First, it says that, it says that he was indignant. I mentioned that Mark emphasizes the, the human nature of Christ, and this here is a perfect example of that. This is the only time in the Greek New Testament, actually, that this particular word that we translate as indignant is used to describe Christ. In all other cases, this word actually describes the Pharisees at their indignance, and even the disciples and their sinful indignance at times. But here, display, Mark displays once more the perfect humanity of Christ, and thus his compassion for those he came to save. In some sense, he had a righteous indignation on behalf of those whom he loved. And second, it says that he says to let the children come to him and not to hinder them. What is, what is he getting at here? Well, because, <clears throat> he says, is because to such that the kingdom belongs. To such, that's an important word. Such indicates, he's not talking about the literal children here, but to those who are like such children. Children, they know, they don't even consider attempting to earn a reward. They cannot. They simply come. Children here, they they illustrate true discipleship, following and trusting in Christ without condition. Receiving the kingdom for what it is, it's a gift. Do we view the kingdom of God's grace as a gift? Or do we... Do we view things transactionally? Do we, do we give? Do we take here and there? Do we seek to earn a share? Do we seek to improve our standing before God based on our own obedience? Or do we take the kingdom and its gifts for what it is? Well, if we get this wrong, it leads to immense spiritual confusion and anxiety. And in the worst cases, it's a refusal of, it can lead to a refusal of entrance into the kingdom. Because salvation can only be a gift, for without Christ's work given to us freely, there's no mediator between God and man, despite our best efforts. And in response to the disciples' legal spirit, Christ leaves them with a warning in in verse 15. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Those who do not receive the kingdom as a child will not enter it. In other words, the one who seeks the kingdom on the basis of self-righteousness, on the basis of obedience, they will never inherit the kingdom. The childlike attitude here is, is one that takes the gospel, the kingdom, for what it is, a gift. This leads us to the second consideration of our passage. This, this is the solution to a legal spirit This leads us now to the childlike reception of the gospel. We see this throughout the passage, but particularly in the last verse. There are many passive elements at work here. 
of receiving the kingdom as a gift without condition. I mean, passive elements of, of receiving faith, of receiving grace with childlike reception. First, see verse 14. It says the kingdom, it says it belongs to such children. It belongs to them. This language here, it denotes an inheritance, a share in something that is given. A rightful share in God's promise of salvation and final glory. A place in His kingdom. But also verse 16. In verse 16, he concludes by saying that the children of the kingdom, they're blessed by Christ. This is a clear picture of salvation. This is a pronouncement. It's a declaration of blessing. Just as we hear in the assurance of pardon this morning, it's an assurance of the gift of the kingdom. It's a pronouncement. Such children, he also says, such children receive the loving grace of Christ. You see how Christ embraces them here. Now, our English isn't as clear, but the original language connotes more of a, not just a laying hands on, but a hugging, a pulling into the bosom, a sign of love. Similarly, believers now, they have their share in God's love with Christ, who, is, who finds his origin in the bosom of the Father, as we hear in John. And, of course, it points to the final embrace to come when, when Christ himself, not only will he embrace us, but he will wipe every tear from your eyes with his own hand. It looks forward to that. It looks forward to that. And this also, this all affirms here what Christ does. It affirms what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism as well. That the believer's only comfort in life and death is that, quote, I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This, this is what it means to receive the kingdom as a gift, as a child. These are the passive elements of receiving God's grace. But there's an active element that we see here as well, if we can call it that, an active element. Jesus simply says to come to me. He says that the children should come to me. It really is that simple. To receive the kingdom as a gift means to come to Christ. Now this is only active in the sense that we receive the kingdom by the act of faith. It ultimately, though, is the spirit that makes us active to do this. But to come to Christ is to recognize that we can meet none of the conditions for receiving the kingdom. In other words, or in the words of Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what we bring to the cross. That's what we bring to Christ. If there is any exchange, it is the exchange of our sins for his righteousness. Not the exchange of our good works, our obedience, our status. It's simply our sins in exchange for the righteousness and the gifts of Christ. God ultimately is he's not limited and finite like we are, that we can earn his favor, that we can prove our standing with him. 
But he does come down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He earns salvation on our behalf. He welcomes all to come. Christ welcomes all who would become a child by faith. The child, like the blessed ones in the Beatitudes. The child isn't symbolic for one who, who earns blessing by obedience. He doesn't he isn't declared blessed based on what he has done. Rather, the child is one who is declared blessed. The child is descriptive for the way God used his people. You, if you are believing in Christ by faith. It's those who know that they can't earn his love. That they have the love of God in Christ. He's all they need. Only through the blood of Christ and his imputation of righteousness and the gift of God can we find a right standing with him. It's a gift. It's not a work. It's not something we earn. This is what it means to receive the child, receive the gospel as a child. Well, in conclusion, let me summarize the main points here. It's a very short passage, but it's very, very important in our practical lives. It's very important as we consider how we go about things as a church, as a body. I hope it's been made clear enough. God asks nothing of you. God asks nothing of you to come to Christ. He asks nothing of you to receive a share in His kingdom. Because truly there's nothing you can give in exchange for His gifts. But never fall into the legal spirit of of assuming that your obedience grants you more or less favor in the sight of God. That's to separate the gifts that are offered in Christ from the person of Christ, from the giver. As a church, let us never set up such false conditions for receiving into the kingdom as we grow, as we see new faces. Let us not act like the disciples here. Even even as inquiring children in our midst profess faith. Let's welcome that. For who here could live up to the standard of God's law without Christ also? None but Christ alone can, can earn a share in the kingdom. And it's by His earning that we also receive it. We rely on God and Jesus Christ for everything. For our salvation, our justification, our sanctification. We rely on Him for our daily provision, our needs, our wellness, our health. We rely on Him for unity as one body. We rely on Christ for all such graces in the Christian life. We rely on Him ultimately as children by faith. So let us now go to our Father as His child, if you're believing in Him, in prayer this morning. Our Father, we thank You for the blessing of Your Word Father, for the pronouncement of blessing that you declare on us as children, Lord, give us faith. Give us a childlike faith that we might come to the knowledge, the realization that we cannot earn a standing before you, that we, unlike the the legal tendency of the disciples here, we do not, by our own status, our own wealth, our own wisdom, we do not earn your time, your gifts, your grace, that, Lord, you declare it as a blessing in Christ. And you also give us your spirit as a seal of that blessing. I pray, Father, that you would be present among us this evening, or this, this morning. Be present in the breaking of bread as we receive it as a gift, as well as the wine. Let these gifts remind us of the work of Christ. 
for the utter, utter lack of conditions that we can meet, Lord, except for the sin that made it necessary. Father, we ask all these things by the power of Your Spirit and in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.